Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So, that music can only mean one thing. And what is that thing? Well, to find out, we're going to have to ask a philosopher. And today we're going to talk to Ian Olasov. And uh, I, I first became aware of Ian on um, the Public Philosophy Network. Um, he's doing really interesting work in public philosophy. And I kind of think that in a way, public philosophy is popular culture, mm-hmm. right? Because the kinds of things that come up in public philosophy projects are the kinds of things people are thinking about. The general public is thinking about what they want to talk about. And, and with, w- that's especially true when it comes to Ian's um, projects. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a real characteristic of our pop culture, just how um, philosophical it is at mm-hmm. any one time, right? So um, in the 1960s, when existentialism was everywhere, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the public philosophy being done, it wasn't being done in the same way, um, sort of helped shape the pop culture. And then yeah. I think we went through some periods where philosophy had kind of disengaged, um, you know, in terms of public philosophy, right? And mm-hmm. you see that reflected in the pop culture. Philosophers were just talking to each other. Yeah. And I yeah. still think that's too, too much the case. <laughs> I, think, I think that philosophers should increasingly view themselves as having a a broader role of engaging with their communities. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that, that sort of bears this out, I think, is when I was in grad school, um, which is, you know, a generation before you were in grad school, um, we were basically instructed, you know, to only talk to philosophers. It's not like they took us out back and said, don't talk to anybody, but the conception of what philosophy was was very narrow. I remember um, one of the faculty members in our program saying, you know, we want to give you guys a glimpse into your career, right? Mm-hmm. And so he calls all the grad students, or it was during one of our meetings, or in the, the lounge, and he's saying, there's four or five people in any sub-discipline. Think of those as the queen bees, right? And then working all around them are the worker bees. And then there are the worker bees that support the worker bees. And, and this was a system that, you know, they, they felt was good. And I think by the time you got to grad school, um, you know, there, there's remnants of that, but at the same time, um, well, I remember, you know, at UMass, um, you guys as grad students were um, being invited to participate in the philosophy for kids programs coming out of one of the five colleges and things. And, and that just didn't happen um, when I was there. I mean, there was a position open and people could apply for it. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say we were being in, encouraged to do public philosophy projects. And I would mm-hmm. actually... I would say further that I don't, I do think that there's a trend in the direction of public philosophy. And what I mean by that is I think there are plenty of philosophers that are committed to, uh, to doing public philosophy. I don't think the system has changed in any way where that's like encouraged by universities and that there's any sort of like 
that universities are saying, oh, this is important for tenure and promotion or anything like that. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, I don't, and, I don't want to oversell it, but at the same time, you know, over the last few decades, I've seen considerably more yeah. people that, that, you know, most folks think of as serious philosophers um, doing things like philosophy and pop culture articles and books oh, sure. and, and things like that, um, where they wouldn't have before. So, right. So it's not like they're sitting you down and saying, here's how you're going to make it in this game. You know, put up a sign and say, ask a philosopher. And I actually think it started happening. These kinds of things started happening uh when I was well on the end of graduate school or even out mm -hmm. more so than when I was in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's built up momentum. Yeah. Cool. Well, shall we um, turn to our interview? Yes. All right. So um, let's talk to Ian Olasov. Okay. Today we're talking to Ian Olasov, a doctoral candidate at CUNY Graduate Center and uh, author of Ask a Philosopher from St. Martin's Press. Ian. Welcome. Wow. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks, yeah, thanks thank for speaking so with us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This should be fun. Looking forward to it. So we're hoping to talk to you about public philosophy and your projects related to that. So how do you, first of all, how do you conceive of public philosophy? Yeah, different people use the phrase public philosophy to mean different things. I think um, it's easiest to just look at a bunch of examples. So I think probably what a lot of um, professional philosophers have in mind when they talk about public philosophy is writing and speaking for a general audience. So writing mm -hmm. op-eds, trade books, um, and you know, going out and giving talks in public places. Yeah. That's public philosophy, but I think public philosophy can also take a lot of other forms. So there are philosophers who collaborate with uh, NGOs and policymakers and community groups, uh, philosophers who work with uh, activists to try to, um, you know, Clar clarify their mission or do what they can for them rhetorically. Um, philosophers uh, do educational outreach with sort of non-traditional groups of students. So with, you know, K through 12 education or um, prison education. Um, philosophers do multimedia stuff. Philosophers make uh, games and uh, YouTube channels and uh, podcasts like this one. Mm -hmm. So I think um, you know, those those are all those are all examples. It's hard to say what they have in common. <laughs> right. Um, um, I, I, I think if to, to, a, to a rough approximation, you could say what they have in common is that they involve philosophers uh, sort of use their characteristic skills and knowledge either collaboratively with some non-professional audience or um, by way of doing some kind of applied philosophy that might be written for a scholarly audience, or um, uh, by doing some educational outreach, by trying to sort of develop that those skills and knowledge in some non-professional audience. So that yeah. that's 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 what I've got by by way of a definition. Good, good. Um, how did you become interested in public philosophy? Yeah, I. It's a good question. I think. I think the moment when I first really decided I was really going to do it for real was um, in 2013. Um, I wasn't teaching in the classroom for the first time in a few years. And I read a piece in Inside Higher Ed by a medievalist uh, called Eric Yeager. And his uh, the, the piece was called Public Speaking. And it was sort of about his, his adventures in public speaking. <laughs> and um, what 
role he thought public speaking had to play in um, the, you know, the so-called crisis in the humanities, the trying to improve uh, public perception of the humanities, uh, justify the existence of the humanities <laughs> to university administrators. Um, and, uh, you know, I had, I had a bit of free time on my hands and I wasn't in the classroom and I sort of resolved then to set up a, a speaker series for a general audience. And I, I walked into the Brooklyn Public Library at exactly the right time. They had just opened a, a new space that they were looking to program. And I said, I had an idea for a speaker series and they, I, they just literally just gave me the keys. I mean, it was, it was incredibly easy. Nice. So, um, that, you know, that, that was how I got into it in the first place. And then sort of that, that event series called Brooklyn Public Philosophers is sort of, uh, uh, branched out in various ways and we've done other, we've done other things, but yeah, that was, that was, that's, something of a, of an origin story. Okay, so what 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 does your project look like now? Well, um, right right now it looks a little different because <laughs> right, of the pandemic. Right. Um, so um, but um, I we we've done a bunch of different things over the years. I think the three main projects that we're involved in are running this uh, this monthly speaker series which is now moved online. It's on um, uh, Zoom and Facebook Live, uh, which just brings philosophers, now philosophers from all over the world to come share their work with uh, uh, not just the, the people of Brooklyn, but with anyone with an internet connection. Yeah, that's great. That's so, great. We found this it, as well. It, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it can seem um, uh, uh, glib or obnoxious to talk about the silver linings of the pandemic, but I do think that like, I do think that this has been it has been a really interesting and and wonderful experience to like connect with people all over all over the states and yeah. all over the world. I, I did a I did a meeting with a a philosophy club in Kyrgyzstan this morning. I <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I don't think I, I I don't think I would have been there otherwise. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. So there's the speaker series. Uh, we've uh, kept up this. Uh, so this, we have this ask a philosopher booth during normal times, uh, yeah. where we, uh, set up a, a table somewhere in a public space, usually, uh, so at a subway station or a street fair or a pride parade or at a farmer's market. And we, uh, set out a little bowl with philosophical questions printed out on slips of paper and a bowl of thought experiments and a bowl of candy. And we uh, wait for people to talk to us, and uh, perhaps surprisingly, they they do. Um, so, and we've been doing a sort of a version of that uh, off and on online since the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, we also have a hand in the in the annual Night of Philosophy and Ideas, which is this sort of massive twelve-hour marathon of talks and discussions and screenings and it's a dance party and people are drinking and eating and so on at the um which happens at different locations all over the world but um one of the one of the bigger ones is at the brooklyn public library in uh, in new york city like uh, up the block from my apartment that's awesome <laughs> that's just great nice so um what are you oh sorry what is your favorite conversation that you've had while talking um, with people for this project? Yeah, for the Ask a Philosopher booth, um, we've had a lot of a lot of really great conversations over the years. I'll just pick. I'll just they're hard to rank, but I'll pick two. So um, 
one time we had this longish conversation with um, uh, uh, mom and her daughter. And uh, the daughter looked like she was maybe about eight or nine years old. And we were mostly talking with the mom about um, uh, animal minds and moral psychology and how how humans solve moral problems and how non-human animals solve moral problems. And um, uh, the kid the, the kid participated a little bit, but she was just sort of buzzing around and picking stuff up and putting stuff down. It's just like this, just this sort of ball of energy. And at one point, the mom sort of realized that we should do more to include the kid in the conversation. And so she asked the kids, do you have any philosophical questions? And this kid just sort of like exploded with, a, um, uh, <laughs> So if we colonize Mars, uh, uh, who should own the land? How much, how, how much should it cost? Uh, uh, who gets to make decisions about the laws there? And, uh, and it was like, I, you know, I just sort of, you know, blinked and my jaw hit the ground. And then the kid just went back and sort of, you know, ran three laps around the block or whatever. She just had too much energy to like sit there and have the rest of this conversation. But that was just like, it was just excellent questions. I mean, they're really, really good questions. I think they're, they're, they're difficult. They're uh, they're rich. They're also very suggestive. I think like um, asking about the origins of private property, um, I think sometimes can suggest radical conclusions to people about how private property should be distributed or redistributed. Um, um, and so that was just I, it was just great. Yeah, so we had this conversation uh, with this kid about Mars colonization, which was a lot of fun. Uh, another encounter, which was sort of somewhere on the highlight reel, was um, we were at a farmer's market in Union Square in Manhattan. Uh, it's, it's a very popular farmer's market. There are all sorts of people. And um, we'd been there for, for a long time, I think too long. I think I'd scheduled this booth to last something like six or eight hours. So I was wow. exhausted. Oh my goodness. But, um, uh, it, yeah, it's it, it, it not smart. I scheduled it for too too much time. Admirable they, though um, that you're willing to sit there and do that. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you're, you're running on fumes at a certain point. Yeah. But the, um, at, some, at, at some point towards the end of this, um, this uh, one of the farmers who'd set up a stand, you know, near, nearby us sort of ran over and sort of breathlessly but but also like smiling the whole time was like what's the point why should i get up in the morning why should i do anything at all um like why should i why, why should i care about anything that happens why should i care about anything in my life <laughs> and we had this uh i think productive conversation i i think i i i gave a version of an answer which wound up being in the ask a philosopher book which was that in some sense whether you care about things is not is not within your control. So, you know, just by being a human being, having the sort of body and brain that you have, you you have to be emotionally attached to mm -hmm. um, certain things. And that that is caring about them. Um, and so, you know, the, the only question is whether you care in a way that you can sort of live with on reflection. Um, uh, you don't, you, it's not up to you not to care about things. But, so that was the answer that I gave him. But it was, uh, uh, it was, among other things, so interesting how how like joyous the question was, given like that its actual content was sort of tended in a kind of nihilistic um, or depressing direction. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm not sure what to make of this, but one one possible lesson you could take away from this is that like even if the actual subject matter of a philosophical conversation is like grim, 
people are so starved for the kind of intimacy that comes from talking about the philosophical problems that matter to them um, that uh, that they're just going they're just going to be pleased at least in some cases they're just going to be happy to talk about this stuff with other people in a productive and you know you know basically accepting basically on board way mm-hmm. and so I think that was to uh, maybe I'm reading too much into that one interaction or that one like facial expression, but um, but that's that's how that's how it seemed to me. And I I I if that's true, I like that it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. So you've mentioned you you've done this booth in a kind of a wide range of uh, venues and places. Uh, what kind of challenges do you face? I mean, I think it's wonderful that that you're in a place that's so diverse and and so so many different perspectives are going to be coming in, I'd imagine, but there are probably some unique challenges as well. Right. Apart from the, the pandemic based yeah. challenges, right? Yeah. Sure. sure. The, the, the routine challenges. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I, so there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of little challenges which come up. I think some usually people are, people either ignore us or they're, they're, friendly and and polite and interested but every now and again you get people who who have a, a chip on their shoulder about philosophy or who are sort of antagonistic somehow mm-hmm. um um we did one uh we done did, did one booth in a in a, a very religious neighborhood in brooklyn and i think what philosophy meant to some of the very religious people there is uh, some kind of assault on on their on their way of life. So you know, um, so we were there like having we talked. Uh, th- not this didn't mean that's not what philosophy meant to everybody there. Mm-hmm. But um, we did at some point it set up there for maybe half an hour, and um, one of the local you know grandmas came over and it's like, who do you think you are? Like, why are you here? But you know, how dare you? <laughs> Yeah. talk about philosophy with my my grandchildren okay well, wow yeah we, we've but, had a similar uh, experience when we were doing philosophy for kids in the schools you know so i mean we ultimately ended up doing it it was great but um when we first kind of started putting it out there they're like well what are you because we live in a very religious area here in utah they're like well what are you doing exactly <laughs> what's your agenda oh. yeah with another sort yeah. of similar experience as well we were in kuwait uh one time talking to a group of people that um, had invited us and most of them were very welcoming. But there were a, a handful of very religious people that thought, I don't need to get any of this from you, right? We've, we've got another source and, um, you know, the Quran. And so and it, was, it was difficult to sort of break down that barrier. Um, but eventually it happened. And, and, yeah. And, I mean, I think one thing that you can, one thing that's sort of in teaching, at least, where you have an opportunity for sort of more sustained interactions when i've sort of encountered this concern among my students i think one thing that's been helpful has been to um talk about the idea of reflective equilibrium to talk about the idea that like um one of the things that you can do in philosophy is to try to make your own uh picture of the world more coherent and yeah. there are different ways of making there there's more than one coherent way not necessarily more than one true way but there is more than one coherent way of thinking about the world and um um the 
So, you know, if it's very important to you uh, that your spiritual beliefs are, you know, are, are bedrock, that they're, that they're going to be a part of whatever um, outlook you, you have walking away from this philosophy class, well, it's possible to do reflective equilibrium with that. You know, that, I mean, that, that was philosophy during uh, the Middle Ages in Europe. I think to a great extent, it was uh, uh, as, um, Islamic philosophy in the Middle Ages was something like this. There were sort of key pieces yeah. of religious doctrine, and it was a matter of interpreting and justifying those doctrines and making them consistent with, you know, what people knew or believed about the world otherwise. So I think that, I think that idea of, um, say, you know, telling people if they're really, really worried that their, that their sacred beliefs are going to be challenged say, well, yeah, uh, you will find people who disagree with you, but you, one thing you can do with philosophy is to um, try to make your beliefs cohere, even if some beliefs are, are, are not open to revision. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Yeah. So um, you may have already sort of touched on this with the, the second of the stories from the book. Um, but what do you find most rewarding about this project? Yeah, I mean, per personally rewarding. I think I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I do enjoy that kind of intimacy and that connection that you get with just, you know, I mean, at this point, I've done a bunch of these booths and I've met I, I would bet a couple of thousand people having these conversations. And um, most of these people are people I uh, have, have would otherwise never have spoken with and probably will never speak with again. And so, you know, you just get you just get this enormous sort of slice of humanity. And yeah. um, that's that's, you know, lovely and mm -hmm. interesting and wonderful. I think um, it's so much of what professional philosophers do for their careers involves an unbelievable amount of delayed gratification and frustration. Um, you write a paper, you shop it around, maybe it gets published five years later, maybe it doesn't. That can be, a, a, that can be just a really exhausting and demoralizing experience. Um, but um, the Ask a Philosopher booth is 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 nothing but instant gratification. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're, you know, you're having the conversation with the person right 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 there. Um, the, the the value of the activity is 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 contained in uh, in the activity itself to some to some extent at least. I mean, you hope that people go home and you know pick up the thread and continue to think about these things. But um, um, that's something that's nice. There's the 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 instant gratification element of it. Um, yeah, I think one thing that I've also really enjoyed is that it sort of forced me to hone some of my own kind of philosophical skills. I think the skill of um, finding an angle, the skill of finding a connection to philosophy in sort of an arbitrary topic. Because after all, when people come with questions or when they come with subject matters, they're, the connection to philosophy isn't always obvious. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it takes some work to, to be able to find a connection to some meaningful, interesting philosophical problem, um, uh, given, you know, what people sort of come to the table with. Um, and, you know, people also ask questions about an enormous range of things. And so, you know, things that I wouldn't otherwise have any really serious scholarly interest in, I do still have to like 
think about them more seriously than I would yeah. Yeah. Uh, in normal circumstances. I have to like, I, I want to say get my story straight, but that's not quite the right phrase. I have to, I have to have, um, I have to have something useful to say about kind of everything that could possibly come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, um, and that's, uh, uh, that's, that's fun. It's fun to develop and, and, and personally, yeah, I'm just personally kind of enrich, enriching and affecting to, yeah. to, you know, develop things that are useful to say. Yeah. Related to that, do you find that um, you see a great many different conceptions of what philosophy is? So you you, you get a lot of questions about um, how people's crystals might work or <laughs> sometimes just stuff yeah. that's very clearly psychology or, you know, and, and not philosophy. And... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, why? It, to some extent, like, why shouldn't that be the case, right? Why, why, why should um, uh, the average uh, New Yorker share a professional philosopher's sense of what counts as a philosophical question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, there are there are more resources for finding out about philosophy and reading what philosophers have to say in a greater variety of venues and in a greater variety of you know channels and media and formats than there were in the very recent past. Um, but it's still, it's, it would, it's, you know, philosophy, especially sort of explicitly or self-consciously labeled as philosophy is not an enormous part of the American public discourse or what mm -hmm. takes place yeah. in the public sphere. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, I, I think, um, in the, when you get these questions about, you know, crystals or astral projection or who shot JFK or whatever, um, there's, um, or for that matter, yeah, uh, purely psychological questions, uh, uh, sort of political questions that are tied to sort of ephemeral current current events, you know, whatever's on CNN right now, whatever, um, you know, finding finding the angle is, is, is tricky there. Finding the connection to philosophy is tricky, but mm -hmm. it's, but it's both interesting and worthwhile to be able to make that connection. And I think also in the process of making that connection, you can sort of gently nudge people in a direction of a more accurate sense of what philosophers actually do, like what we, yeah. What, yeah. what philosophers are good for. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know. Philosophy truly is sort of the queen of the special sciences. There's almost always bound to be a, a connection there somewhere. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So yeah. all this then ultimately turned into a book project too. Can you tell us about that? It sure did, yeah. Um, I think after a uh, uh, an Ask a Philosopher radio segment that I did with uh, my friend Lee McIntyre for uh, New York Public Radio, um, my then editor at uh, St. Martin's, Stephen Power, uh, heard heard the segment and wrote me an email. And um, I think I'd had a thought in the past, sort of <laughs> vaguely, that. Oh yeah, I could write something about the Ask a Philosopher booth at some point, or based on the Ask a Philosopher booth. But in the course of the, our our of my of my first meeting with him, my first conversation with him, it just sort of became very clear what the structure of the book would be. Oh yeah, we sort of collect the best questions that we've received at the booth, and my attempts to answer them, and sort of little vignettes, little interesting moments, or uh, you know the stories that make booths, you know, memorable that stick out to me in, in thinking about 
this project over the last few years. So yeah, after after that meeting with the, with Stephen, it was sort of like, well, we had to get the book proposal actually approved. But once the book proposal was actually approved, it was like, yep, okay, this is we we can write this thing. It was it was very the writing process itself was um, weirdly frictionless. It was it was uh, I think in part because I'd already had all of these conversations. It's not like I was transcribing the conversations, but it, in part because I'd already sort of by definition talked about all of these things. Um, I, I, I think the writing process was very natural for me. I enjoyed it tremendously. It was, it was a blast. Great. So you've, you've given us a preview of some of the stories that you've included. Um, are there a couple more that you'd like to highlight? Um, sure. From the book? Yeah, there was, um, yeah, there was one, um, one, Really funny one, really sweet one was a um, uh, uh, this again. Lee McIntyre was there for this one, and uh, he was talking with a with a parent and a and a very young child. I think this kid must have been about four or five, and um, uh, <laughs> and the kid asked uh, asked you know parent asked the kid you know do you have a, a philosophical question kid looked at Lee and said, how am I real? And it is a hell of a question. I think, you know, and whether, whether they meant that a more epistemological question or a more metaphysical question, you know, we'll never know at the point. But the, um, but Lee, Lee said, well, close your eyes. Kid close, close your eyes. Uh, are you still there? It's yes, I'm still here. So you're real. And then, the, and then the immediate, and then like, we were just on the way to the entrance to the subway. So the parent just like whisked the kid off. The whole interaction took like five seconds. It was just so, so, so much, so much was packed into such a brief encounter. That was really great. I think one other interesting one was, um, was also with, uh, was also with a, a group of kids. This was in, um, uh, in Grand Army Plaza in in uh, Brooklyn, and a sort of a, a group of families were walking together. Maybe it was like a birthday party or something. But a bunch of families were hanging out, and they all had a bunch of school age children. And one of the older kids, who looked like she was about eleven or twelve, um, came up, and the, one of the moms said, "You know, you have a philosophical question." And um, the kids sort of thought for a second, said, "Okay, who's better, Freud or Jung?" <laughs> and uh it's just if if you know park slope brooklyn if you know this neighborhood maybe maybe that makes a little bit more sense in park slope than than it does elsewhere but um it's a it's a it's that kind of neighborhood but we had this we had this conversation but it was and it turned into this very rich conversation about um about freud and young but then quickly into a conversation about uh what dreams are for and uh 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 what we can learn about ourselves from our dreams, uh, what it could possibly mean to interpret a dream correctly or incorrectly. Um, and this was, I think, this was a really rewarding conversation. It was also a little bit sad, I think, that um, somebody had already at like, uh, at this age of 11 or 12, however old this kid, kid was, had already gotten the sense that talking about philosophy meant talking about um, uh, some dead genius, yeah. uh, like mm -hmm. not talking about the problems themselves, but talking yeah. about uh, talking about some historical figure. Yeah. And um, I think it's important to to 
cor correct that. I think a lot of I think a, a lot of people who have sort of otherwise accurate senses of sort of what philosophy is about or what philosophers have talked about historically um, do sometimes get hung up on that. That they do think that they do think that sort of well, philosophy was a great thing when it used to happen, um, mm -hmm. uh, but you know the, the idea that it's a living that it's a living tradition, a living conversation that there's work for philosophers to do today, other than sort of interpreting Kant or something, mm -hmm. is not that there's anything wrong with Kant. Um, is uh, you know that's news to some people, and so mm -hmm. you know I, I hope hopefully hopefully that conversation did a, a little bit yeah again to sort of gently nudge somebody <laughs> in a in a towards a towards a different conception of like yeah what philosophers are up to what philosophy is when i first started studying and then subsequently teaching philosophy i thought boy this is a really exciting time right so later part of the 20th century and analytic philosophy is blowing up and there's more great work being done on everything than at any time ever before um and then we've had you know just a couple decades later this massive turn towards public philosophy, um, more inclusive philosophies, getting more people involved, not just talking about things that Bertrand Russell would have um, approved of and stuff. And, and now I think, you know, one thing we can share with people is this is maybe the best time ever to be doing philosophy. I mean, yeah, Aristotle and Plato lived at the same time, and that was really good too. Um, but, you know, philosophy seems kind of limitless now in a way that it didn't, um, you know, even 25 or 30 years ago when I first started. But at started the same teaching. time, like this projects like this are sort of getting back to philosophy's roots. I see that like it seems to me that what you're doing is very Socratic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering if do, do you feel that um, philosophers should be getting back to their roots in that sense, that there should be more public engagement? And, and maybe you could say something about the value of public philosophy. And, and corrupting the, sure. the youth. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you're at it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think more philosophers should be doing this stuff, although I, 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 I don't want to say that this is the only sort of valuable philosophical activity. I think there's room for, you know, scholarship in philosophy that's sort of inward inwardly directed or you know yeah like that's a purely professional conversation i think there's you know mm -hmm. there are reasons to have some of these conversations but the the balance between public facing work and uh and professional work has has i think over the last i don't know you tell me 100 150 years sort of been thrown wildly out of whack and it's yeah it's time for a a, a bit of a change of course yeah, right. and yeah and the change of course is, is well underway i'd say mm -hmm. it's happening yeah. yeah. Um, I think one of the so, uh, you know, at this point, I think there's there's just there's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, there's just a ton of there's a ton of good work out there. But the professional incentives still don't line up with the value of the work. Right. So <laughs> yeah. what people get rewarded for in their careers is still, you know, writing, writing journal articles, even if uh, their journal article article can be very good but you know if a tree falls in, in the forest and no one hears it you know mm -hmm. it's it's it it only does so much for the world um uh and so there's a so i think i think that you know it would help if hiring decisions tenure and promotion decisions uh uh decisions about sort of you know sort of awards for you know, prestige in the profession. If these sort of lined up with the with the value of public philosophy um, more neatly, I think that would be a very 
I think that would be a very good thing. Right now, I think a lot of people still, more or less correctly in a lot of cases, see doing philosophy as a, as a, as a, as a professional burden that it's sort of like, oh, well, I want to do this, but like, I, I, you know, I have to eat and I'm not, you know, this yeah. is not, this is not directly tied to my career. And so, you know, anything we can do to change that is, uh, is all, is all for the better. I mean, but then, okay. So that's, but that's sort of presuming that this is a valuable activity to begin with. So to mm -hmm. actually speak to the value of it itself. I mean, um, I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of different types of public philosophy projects. They're valuable for different reasons. It, in the case of the Ask a Philosopher booth in particular, um, I think there's value in um, uh, improving public perception uh, and appreciation of philosophy. I think giving people a sense that philosophers are like out there doing, doing fun, interesting stuff rather than just sort of talking with each other in, in the ivory tower. Hmm. I think um, concretely helping people with their philosophical problems. These are problems that people care about, you know, getting out in the street yeah. and actually like doing the work of like connecting people with useful philosophical resources. I think that's valuable. I think the kind of, especially in a place like New York City, which is just so so huge and so alienating and so lonely for so many people, I think the kind of intimacy that comes from, like I've already said a couple of times, that comes from, you know, these sorts of exchanges is is valuable. I think that um, uh, um, by giving philosophers a fun way to do public philosophy, that is also a way to sort of gently shift the incentives in the in the right direction to shift philosophers to more in the direction of thinking about thinking about doing work not that every philosopher has to do this necessarily but thinking about doing work that would be um useful to or appreciated by a general audience um i think these are all these are all reasons to oh i'll add one other thing because i think it's actually kind of important in the you know present political context I mean, one of the things that's good <laughs> about philosophy is what it does to people's standards of reasoning and argumentation. I think yeah. that people are able to reason more ed when philosophy is like working well, which it doesn't always. Um, but when 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 things are going right, people are able to reason productively across very deep disagreement, you know, within political philosophy journals, you see liberals and Marxists and libertarians and anarchists, you know, uh, engaging in useful debate with each other. And um, that, that uh, our ability to reason productively across deep disagreement has, uh, is, is uh, not looking too hot in the US and <laughs> elsewhere in the world these days. Yeah. And I think there's, I think there's room for public philosophy to, you know, who knows, who knows how effective these things are, but to whatever extent public philosophy can sort of export the, 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 the norms that guide the best philosophical conversations, that's, that's, you know, that's our way of doing, doing a little bit to, to move the needle there. Yeah, we, we've been hosting these events called Ethics Slams, and um, they, they've been fairly successful, and, you know, we'll get 75 to 150 people to show up at a restaurant or a, a coffee shop. And um, a, a fella came up to me you know, during one of these. It's always something very topical. And he's like, you're not going to change anybody's mind here. And I, I thought about that. And I thought, and I really wanted to. I didn't didn't think that was the point, right? But the, the modeling of certain kinds of conversations to, you know, and like you said, I don't know how much good it's doing because 
the world's changing very rapidly where people are less and less tolerant um, and less and less willing to engage in good conversations. But any sort of bit of that um, where, you know, 100 people will go home and say, oh, that wasn't bad. I can talk to my uncle who I disagree with vehemently without yelling and getting hostile. It's, it's good, right? It all helps. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's incredible. If you get 75 or 100 people there, that's that's more than a bit. That's yeah. A lot of people. And yeah. When, when it's at the pizza parlor, we get 150. When it's at the coffee shop, we get 75. Um, which, it which might, it might be the, the our food students' priorities, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Although, although, not for nothing, I think there is actually a lesson for public philosophers in there that, like, um, you know, so, some of the things that you uh, aren't like trained to think about in grad school, like where do you host your events? Um, how, how are you going to feed the people who come to the events? I think these things are actually like, do you have any additional entertainment that's you know going to be along for the the the, the ride. I think these things are uh, are worth thinking about if you're interested in if you're interested in the numbers. If you're interested in like getting more people to show up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pizza places and coffee shops both good. Sounds like yeah. pizza places are better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell us where people can get your book, and is there a preferred place they'd like them to get it? Or oh yeah, um, the it's it's available at all at all fine bookstores. Um, I think. Uh, I think that probably if people really wanted to benefit me personally as much as they possibly could, I think that probably the, the way to do that is to is to go to your local bookstore and and, and uh, ask them for a copy. Um, uh, if you're not interested in buying it yourself, I uh, you can you can ask your library to pick up a copy. I think that would be great. Um, um, the uh, yeah, if we get it on the if we get it on the bookshelves at local bookstores, that that would be a good thing. That's great. Okay, well, thanks a lot for talking to us. This is a great conversation. Yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. An absolute blast. Cheers. Okay, Rates, what are we liking this week? Well, we don't have a lot to recommend because we've been so glued to the screen monitoring election the election right? yeah that, that's kind of a real-time thing too right so we probably don't want to say hey everybody watch the presidential election <laughs> no. returns because by the time you listen to this they're over i can't offer or maybe this a recommendation not. anyway I right, mean, yeah. <laughs> that was the most anxiety produ producing thing yeah i, I just said that when people hear this they're going to be over but now that i think about it um no, you know no. we, we may get another episode in in two weeks before nevada <laughs> gets called yeah, uh, but we have we watched um, this documentary, Dick Johnson is Dead, which was, a, I, I was about to say a lot of fun, but uh, that's not exactly what it was. It was um, powerful, I guess. Yeah, kind of a uh, lot of cool and a lot of very existential. awkward. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, so it's a, a woman is making a documentary starring her father about her father's death, um, yeah. and he's... He's got some form of memory loss. I don't know if it's dementia or, or I mean, I don't know if it's Alzheimer's or what. But, mm -hmm. um, and, and they have reason to believe his death is impending, right? So yeah. sometime in the next you know, short period of time, not weeks, but years. Yeah. And so it start, you know, the, 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 the idea behind it is that. Actually, I'm, I'm going to pause on that. Maybe I, I won't share too many details because it's. 
it goes in one direction at the beginning and then doesn't really follow through with that particular direction, in my opinion. But, yeah, uh, maybe just enough to say that there's something really interesting going on there, something quirky and uh, very existential, like you said. And Dick Johnson is, is a very charming yeah, man. Yeah, that's you know? the so takeaway. It's, <laughs> it's, it's delightful. Yeah, yeah. The, the premise, um, we heard the premise in advance and the premise we heard turned out not to be the thing anyway. So. Yeah, it's a slice of Americana in a good way. If <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. can kind of, if that's possible to say. Yeah, at yeah. This point. And then the other thing we're liking this week um, is Steve Kornacki at the <laughs> Big Bird. Yes. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage. That's I think they're all one word. To find out about upcoming episodes, if you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.